Voices of Pim Better Podcast. Kenya, it's the place where I came to a realization. I write these words by the flickering glow of candlelight, the single audience member to an orchestra of howls coming from the trees. I've been thinking a lot about the heroes of my youth, great explorers, adventurers, seekers of the unknown. I devoured their stories from the pages of books, saw their tales flash before me on the screen. I created whole scenarios in my head where their hero's journey became my own. Long rides would be spent staring out the window into an imagined world in which I navigated the seas, ran besides mammoth-sized animals, and spoke in foreign tongues. Maybe it stemmed from the desire to be interesting, to be unanchored, to be free to roam to the edges of the world. For so long I wondered when I would become this person. Tonight, with the day of savanna dust stuck to my clothes, my skin burned from the sun, the still fresh wounds on the sole of my foot, and the cries of the baboons like a cacophony of ghosts, I came to the realization that I already have. Today I'm going to be talking about Kenya. I just got back, uh, I guess less than 48 hours ago, so most of this is still fresh, and I've been trying to write out how I'm going to talk about Kenya, because there's a lot to say. Uh, So I guess I'll start and run through this kind of chronologically. I had a, a full day layover in Cairo, Egypt. Um, so I'm not going to talk about Egypt in this episode, and I don't know if I can really do uh, Cairo any justice uh, by doing a full podcast about it, just because I was there for such a short amount of time, but we'll talk about that in another day. So, Kenya. I guess sort of some of the first things that you notice uh, in regards to Nairobi. First is that uh, the weather is awesome. It's it's kind of like Southern California in the way that it gets pretty warm during the day. I think it got into like the eighties while we were there. And then at night it cools down into the lower sixties or fifties and people are wearing jackets and, and, and long sleeves and things like that. Um, so the weather is amazing. 
the traffic is insane. Um, it's funny because some of the places that I've been and talked about, you can characterize the traffic in a certain way or, or the way that people get around. Uh, in Thailand, obviously, you know about tuk-tuks. In Vietnam, everybody's riding a motorbike. And there's Venus on taxis and things like that. But um, in Nairobi, the taxis that are most prevalent are these vans that are packed full of people um, <laughs> without a whole lot of air in it. And they're everywhere and they kind of don't obey any sort of laws of the road. And they merge when they want to merge and they move where they want to move. And it's just kind of chaos and craziness. But it makes it kind of fun. Um, there are no, there are some, but there really aren't many uh, traffic lights at all. And there really are no traffic lines in the road to keep you in a specific lane. And there's lots of roundabouts. Uh, so traffic is pretty crazy. And also, if you think that New York is bad, uh, if you think the Belt Parkway is bad, or you think that Los Angeles traffic is bad, geez, Nairobi traffic is nuts. Uh, there were certain points in the day where we, would, we were getting around and you would just sit there like sit there not moving for a solid 15 minutes until there was a little bit of movement. Um, one thing I guess that's kind of fun is there would be people herding uh, cattle or goats and they would, the goats and, or the, the, the cows would just fill the road and you would have to wait in the already crazy traffic for a while. Uh, when you're stuck in traffic, people are walking up and down the streets in between cars selling things. Uh, there are people that were, there were people on motorbikes. It's nowhere near like places in Southeast Asia, but uh, they would even, these people on bikes would even go backwards against traffic just to be able to weave in and out to get to a better location where they could kind of move forward. Uh, so all that to say that traffic in Kenya is nuts. Uh, I stayed with a friend of mine, Caroline, from New York, and we stayed with a friend of hers who works for the UN. Uh, I won't use any names. Uh, you know, it's not like this is a big podcast or anything, but uh, hung out with a number of people that do work for the United Nations, and they were all fascinating. I'm hoping to get a couple of them on here, and I think that a few of those people will be mentioned throughout this episode. Uh, so the first thing that we did in Kenya was, after arriving and trying to sleep and get rid of the jet lag was we flew to Diani. Diani is a strip of beach on the eastern coast of Kenya on the Indian Ocean. And its closest city, I believe, is Mombasa. We took a real small plane to get there. And we, we took planes a couple of times uh, to get around within Kenya um, with varying degrees of comfort and success. So the one that I will recommend that people take is Air Kenya. They just like had a terminal of sorts that was inside and you didn't have to wait outside in the heat and you could get coffee and things like that, whereas some of the other places didn't have that. So I won't, you know, uh, talk badly about the other, other ones, but uh, I do recommend Air Kenya. So you get in this little plane. I, I think it held like, <laughs> the first one we took held like 15 people. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, uh, maybe it's ridiculous, but it reminded me of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom in the beginning when he falls asleep with uh, Shorty and the woman, I forget her name, but they fall asleep and, and the two pilots try to sabotage them by jumping out of the plane and it crashes and all that craziness ensues. 
Uh, so I felt like a little kid in, in the fact that I was Indiana Jones for the hour and a half that we were on that flight. So Diani is really interesting. Um, I'll say first that when you land, I believe it was at Wilson Airport, uh, you get a taxi and, and you drive to the beach, which isn't far from the airport, but the area right around the beach is really poor. Um, it's, it was interesting for me because, you know, I, I've seen obviously a lot of poverty in, in the travels that I've done, but um, if, if you think that like there's true, <laughs> maybe this is a hard statement to make, but I think that sometimes what we think of as poverty in America is really a much higher standard of living than poverty in other places. Um, so you drive through this on the way to sort of like living in excess, which I don't know. I don't know if that should fill you with guilt, but it does put things into perspective in, okay, I'm going to go spend money and eat and drink and be comfortable. And like right outside the place that I'll be staying is people living in, in real, real true poverty. Um, so yeah, that's on your mind when you get to Diani. So Diani itself is a strip of white sand beaches. I, I, if you've been someplace uh, tropical or, or places where resorts are, like it's that kind of a beach. White sand beaches, crystal clear water, um, hot weather. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, the place that we stayed had bungalows, I guess, of sorts. Um, and it was empty for the first day that we were there. We were the only people at, uh, the lodge that we were staying at. I think there are some bigger resorty type of resorty resort type of places, uh, that are along this strip, but that's, we didn't stay at a place like that. Um, and there really weren't many people there. Like it it feels kind of like a hidden gem, um, it doesn't get super loud during the day or night. There are places that have music, either live music or, you know, DJ music. And there are bars and things like that. And you can go to them, but there's a really relaxed, chill vibe. I don't know if we just were going off season or not, but, you know, it was a teacher holiday. So I, I don't know. It uh, was felt pretty secluded. You could go see the sunrise in the morning, the sunset at night. And like, it's, it's quiet and it's peaceful and it's, it's really a beautiful place. It really, truly felt like it was a hidden gem. At night, we went out, we were looking at the stars, and like there was no one around, and the stars were beautiful, and it was, uh, it was a really cool feeling. Um, some of, like, the lodges do get pretty hot. Uh, you'll notice most places in, in Kenya, you're sleeping in a mosquito net, and like <laughs> that was kind of cool for me, and it was new. It's not something that like you brush against or you feel or anything, but the lodge did get really hot. Uh, and there's no AC or anything like that. Uh, there are fans. You can't really keep your windows open during the day because seriously, uh, there are these monkeys all over the place and they will come in the window and like take anything scented that you have out. Uh, so (laughs) that was pretty cool and interesting. The story I have from Diani is that we didn't really go to the beach the first day because we got there like eh, late afternoon when the sun was starting to set. So we were just getting acclimated and we went to get food and things like that. So the next morning we wake up, get breakfast and we head to the beach. Now, 
again, the beach is, is beautiful. And there are people selling things and as there are in anywhere you travel in the world and they're trying to get you to buy, you know, tchotchke stuff. There's people selling coconuts. There's a guy with a camel on the beach and he wants you to, to pay for a camel ride. Uh, there, there's skydiving there. There is uh, deep sea diving and fishing. Well, deep sea. There's diving. And uh, there are boats you can take. So there are two really long sandbars and normally you would take a boat to get out to the sandbar, but in low tide, the low tide goes out so, so far. Like it, it really looks, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. It looks like you can walk like well over a mile. Like you can walk out to both sandbars. So we get there, it's a low tide and here comes the ugly American Tim. And I'm like, Oh cool. I'm going to walk all the way out to that sandbar. Now I'm going to preface this by saying I'm in the beginning stages of prepping a, an episode about uh, tra- traveling safety and health and things like that. So I'll kind of set the tone here and say that I should have been wearing water shoes or something. So I'm walking out and you know here I am. Oh, cool. I walk ahead of my friends who are lagging behind me. I'm going to be in the water. It's going to be beautiful. And I'm going to walk out to the sandbars and get an awesome view. I make it uh, 30 yards maybe when I feel like, ah, like I just stepped on a shell or something, something sharp in the bottom of my foot. And like it, I'm like, ah, it hurts, but I'm trying to shake it off. And like the pain is getting increasingly worse. So I I yell out to my friend Carolyn. I'm like, ah, like I think I stepped on a shell and I've got a shell in my foot or something like that. I can feel like it feels like something's dangling from my foot. Uh, so I'm thinking like I just shredded my foot and I've got skin hanging off of it. So, uh, Caroline runs out to me and, you know, I put my arm on her shoulder and I'm hopping on one foot and, uh, our friend Christian goes, you know, you probably stepped on a sea urchin. So I'm like, Oh Jesus. Now I have a recorded episode with Kevin. It's, uh, the second episode that I, that I did with Kevin. And the story that we talk about is him stepping on a sea urchin in Jamaica and getting makeshift surgery to get these quills pulled out. Uh, so I have, of course I have to one up Kevin and, and do the exact same thing. So I lift up my foot and Caroline looks at my foot and she's like, Oh my God, you've got these quills hanging out of your foot. Like, oh crap. Now there's not like a medical staff at the lodge. There's no medical staff on the beach. There's a hospital that's pretty close that you can take a tuk-tuk to. So uh, she runs up to some of the bars along the beach and she's like, hey, my friend has quail stuck in his foot. We need some help. What do we do? Uh, You know, it's pretty painful. It definitely does not feel good, but it's about to get a whole lot more painful. So the closest bar, I think it was 40 Thieves, they direct us to uh, this shop next door that has dive instructors and things like that. Uh, There's two gentlemen inside who are like, oh, sure, we'll help you out. This happens, you know, pretty often. You're going to be okay. So, (laughs) you know, God bless, I guess. But their solution was to go to a tree, pull off these uh, thick thorns from the tree, and to then use these thorns to dig into the holes and pull out these quills. Now, the quills themselves are really delicate, but they're super sharp. So 
as soon as you go to pull on one, it just breaks. And I had 12 in my foot. So I've got 12 quills now where it's completely under the skin because as soon as you, again, try to pull on it, they just snap right off. So they're using these thorns from the tree to try to make the hole bigger so that they can then stick tweezers into the like top of the hole and pull out the quills. <laughs> so they're doing this on the beach. It does not feel good. Um, and it is not working. And so they're, they're digging, 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 and none of these quills are coming out. Uh, Caroline's being a great friend. She gets me a Dawa, which is the uh, local cocktail of choice in uh, Kenya and especially Diani. And that's my anesthetic. Like <laughs> The thorns are not working. <laughs> So what these two guys tell me is you need to go get some papaya milk, which I, I guess, I don't know if they meant papaya juice or if it's like the, I guess the liquid that comes out of the papaya when you break it open. And they said, coat your foot in papaya, in papaya milk. It'll soften it. The enzymes from the papaya maybe will help extract the quills a little bit and then like come back and we'll try again. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's great. And I, I like, I would love to believe that works, but like, I've got to get these out of my foot. They're not poisonous where we were, like they are in like uh, Mexico and the Caribbean and things like that. But uh, everyone was saying like, if you don't get these out, they're going to become infected and that's bad. So I go to my lodge and I ask them, can you guys help me out? Now they send me to their dive instructor. <laughs> so their dive instructor uh, cuts open uh, some, like an aloe plant and he rubs it all over my foot, and then he wraps my foot in gauze. I don't really think this was helping. Um, but he's like, again, like the other guys, he says, come back in two hours. So, you know, I've got my foot wrapped. I go to the beach, and I'm just sitting in the sun. Uh, Caroline and Christian get to hop around in the water and enjoy that. And I was enjoying myself. It was nice to be out in the sun where it had been cold in New York and, you know, just kind of mellow out. Uh, so I'm sitting there with my foot wrapped up, looking like I'm wounded. And there's a woman who, who calls over to me. She says, hey, come over here. And, you know, at first I'm like, uh, what's this about? You know, uh, you get propositioned for all sorts of things uh, when you're traveling in certain places. So she calls me over and she's like, hey, what happened to your foot? And I told her, uh, you know, I stepped on a, stepped on a sea urchin. <laughs> So she's laughing a bit, and uh, she says, you know, you're American. I said, yeah. And she said, there aren't a whole lot of Americans that come here. And as I started to pay attention, I realized that, that most of, like, the Western tourists and the white tourists, and, you know, things like that, were traveling from Europe. And so I was a bit of a minority in that region in that I was, like, a Western white American, and I was here in Diani. Um, and so we just started talking and we, we talked for a while and, uh, it was really enlightening. And this is sort of the thing that I love the most about travel. I've talked about this before in the episode about Vietnam, but I love to just sit and talk with people and learn about them and learn about the country from their perspective, learn about the specific region that we're in from their perspective. Um, now she talked to me a lot about work and about how, as had been very apparent, uh, there's a lot of poverty around Diani. And she said, you'll notice that 
a lot of the people here selling things, selling bracelets and coconuts, they're educated people, meaning they went to school and they received a formal education in Kenya and they aren't able to find jobs. Uh, and she she was really intelligent and you could tell very educated and knew a lot of things about the world and knew a lot about Kenya and educated me for you know the better half of an hour, an hour and a half. Now she talked about how difficult it is for women in particular and how... Um, I want to be real while still keeping this podcast somewhat PC, as I've talked about this in the past, but um, there are certain things that she told me women have to do in order to keep jobs in certain places in Kenya. And you can read between the lines and understand what I'm saying here. Um, And that it's really difficult for women to sustain a job if you're not willing to do certain things. Um, And that when people are outspoken, Oftentimes, the outspoken people are silenced or disappeared. Uh, you know, you've most likely heard this story about other places in the world, but Kenya is plagued by it as well. Uh, one thing that I, I learned through various avenues on this trip is that there is uh, a somewhat high degree of corruption, and that runs through law enforcement and government, and it's a really unfortunate reality of the country and of other places in Africa as well. Um, but she was really fascinating and I really valued the time that she talked to me and helped me to learn about Kenya and, and Kenyan people. Uh, so she was joined then by two people. One of them was her sister and one of them was her friend. And the one woman said, Hey, what, what happened to your foot? So I said, I stepped on a sea urchin. (laughs) And, you know, they're laughing and they're talking about me in Swahili. And she says, hey, I'm a nurse. If you find a needle and you find some tweezers, I can definitely help you get those out of your foot. So I'm like, oh, yes, thank you. Amazing. So uh, I hop on one foot over to to the lodge that I'm staying at. And I say, uh, I go to the dive shop and I say, listen, I need a needle and I need some tweezers. Uh, I found somebody who can help me out. And the guy was like, oh, okay, great. That's, that's perfect. So he has a first aid kit and there's tweezers in there. But the first aid kit doesn't have band-aids or anything like that. Um, but it does have peroxide. So then he goes and he finds a needle, which is a flattened fishing hook. It's not, it's not a needle. <laughs> so he, he burns that with a flame for a little bit. And then he soaks that in peroxide. And then he gives me the bottle of peroxide. So I have peroxide, this uh, flattened, pretty thick fishing needle, and tweezers. And I bring it over to the woman. And whew, this is nuts. She, just like the guys with the thorns, is digging into the holes with this needle and then picking into the holes and trying to pull out the, um, the quills. And God, I was trying to act tough and cool, and under control, but it hurts. <laughs> it really hurt. It hurt bad. Um, so I was like holding on to a pole and, and having a Tusker, which is the local beer, again, as my, an- like, as my uh, anesthetic, and she was, you know, pouring the peroxide on this, and gosh, it hurt, and I was trying not to scream, and she's like, she's making fun of me. And, and now we're causing a scene. Like we've got a whole little community of people that are watching me. Um, and so the one woman's daughter was like 
playing with my legs and the hair on my legs. And she was telling me she, she's, <laughs> she's not used to people with hairy legs. And, um, and, uh, another kid was pulling on my hair. And so they were, they were cool and kind of distracting me. Uh, but gosh, this was nuts. <laughs> it took a, a solid five to 10 minutes, maybe more for each quill to come out. And so she was like sweating a bit and I was grimacing and, and, and yelping <laughs> and she's successful in pulling these quills out of my foot, man, like bless this woman for, for, for helping me out. She, she performed makeshift beachside surgery with a fishing hook and was able to pull all of these quills out of my foot. And oh gosh, thank you. <laughs> you know who you are. Uh, my foot still, it's pretty gnarly. Like there, there are these like 12 black holes in my foot to this day, which is a, a good week past the point when this happened, I guess now like a week and a half, two weeks. Um, and it doesn't feel good when you press on the holes, but at least the quills are out and it doesn't look infected or anything like that. <laughs> um, the rest of the time in Diani, I was super careful about, um, not, you know, stepping in the sand or, or stepping on anything that, would, would get the, the, the cuts infected. Um, so that's kind of my, uh, my, uh, not fun moment, but my, my good story from Diani. Uh, I definitely recommend going there. Um, there is a really cool restaurant within a cave that we went to. The name totally slips me, but you'll easily find it if you go to Diani. The one place that most people congregate is that place 40 Thieves. So you can meet locals, you can meet uh, travelers, you can meet expats. There was this older couple there on the beach that were known as like the king and queen of the beach that they were, they were expats that lived there permanently. Um, beautiful place. Def definitely recommend going there. So we, uh, we flew back from there to Nairobi, stayed for a night in Nairobi. Um, we actually took a, a, I should mention, a tuk-tuk to the airport on the way back. So there are tuk-tuks there too, just like you'll see in Southeast Asia. Um, so we fly back to, like I said, Nairobi. And then the next day we are going to a safari. And whew, this was amazing. We flew to uh, Masai Mara, which is uh, the northern part, I guess, of the, of the Serengeti. Um, so a lot of people go on safaris in Tanzania. It's that same piece of land, but the northern portion of this goes above the Tanzanian border into uh, Kenya. Um, again, fly Air Kenya. It's your best bet. Now, whew, there's a lot to talk about here. So first I'll describe the lodge itself. So the lodge is really, really cool. You get these like half tent, half hut type of things where you have a bathroom in it and that bathroom has, has walls to it. And the whole structure that you stay in has like a tiled roof to it. But I guess maybe like a fifth of, mm, yeah, like a, like, a, like a fifth of the length of your structure has walls in it. That's your bathroom part. And the rest of it has tent flaps. So it's, you know, like a thick tent. And the front of it is like your mosquito net uh, tarp type of a thing. And you have a porch. So it's beautiful. Um, it's a really cool place to stay. 
there are two points in the day when they have to cut the power and you have no power in there. And so it gets real dark and you're, you are out there. You, you, you are like, <laughs> like in the bush. Um, at night we would be a uh, lullaby to sleep by these screaming animals. And I think these were animals that were making a mating call, but it really, it sounded like a banshee. It was this, this incredible screaming sound. I think it was monkeys or baboons or apes. Someone said to me, oh no, that's definitely someone that was out there uh, on, on safari was like, that's definitely the hyenas. I don't think it was hyenas. Uh, they're super shy. I doubt that they would come around uh, all those people. But maybe, you know, I, I, barely, I don't know anything about this. Uh, but the reason that I say that I think it's, it's monkeys is um, when we first got there, I went to my bag and I was unloading things and I reached down and I was kind of on all fours pulling things out of my bag. And as I'm sitting up, I hear this like popping, crunching, almost eating sound. And I look out the mosquito net front of my tent uh, that you zip up and I am face to face with something. And at first, like it, it takes me a second to realize what I'm looking at. It is something about the size of what I'll say, like a, like an eight to 10 year old child. And it is sitting there drooling and it has these sharp fangs and it's, it's looking right at me. The only thing between me and <laughs> this creature is mosquito net tarp. Um, it's gray and I'm like, whoa, that is a really big monkey. And like, I make a noise as I like go to kind of beeline it for the bathroom, which doesn't have a door. It just has a curtain. So there's not a whole lot of protection if something is to come at you and the thing gets freaked out and, and it runs off and it's got this like <laughs> this bare butt, this red butt. And I'm like, I think that's a baboon. So I go to the field guide that each of us had, and yeah, it's a baboon. I was face-to-face with, <laughs> with this snarling baboon, and I don't know. That just felt so cool. Uh, you, like I said, you are really out there. You hear all sorts of no- noises throughout the night. Uh, you see a lot of animals even there within your lodge. It's really cool. Uh, when we were eating one of our meals, a-, a bird flew in and started like totally not scared of me, just picking food off of my plate. Um, all your meals are included at least where I stayed, but I think most of the lodges are like that. And honestly, it was really pretty good. Uh, there, there, you know, there was some Western food, but there was a lot of, uh, Indian influenced food, some Ethiopian influenced and African food as well, which makes sense for obviously the location that you're in. Uh, Kenyan cuisine is heavily influenced by traditional African food. Uh, like I said, India, and, um, like an Ethiopian style of food where you get like pickled kind of vegetables and meats and, and like a bread to pick it up with. Uh, so the food at the lodge was really good. And I, uh, you know, have no complaints about that. Um, okay. So when you go out on safari, you have a Maasai guide. Now I believe that at most lodges, you can arrange who your guide and your driver is through the lodge. I was lucky in the fact that the gentleman that we knew from the UN and now my friend, the guy that we were hanging out with, um, he 
knew a person who knows a person who knows a Maasai chief. And I do want to plug him because he was absolutely fantastic. His name is Patrick Ole Latoura. And you can get him at patrick.latoura at gmail.com. Last name is spelled L-E-T-U-R-A. And his website is E-W-A-N-G-A-N maasai.org so iwanganmasai.org Patrick is a Maasai chief and his brother David uh, was our second guide and they were absolutely amazing uh, sometimes they would go off the beaten path um, anytime we were like hey I want to I want to try to find this animal like they they would find it so easily um, Patrick was really respected by the other um, Maasai and the other drivers and guides. And so people would come and they would talk to him as we were driving and they would say hello to us and we're super friendly. Uh, he, he's an amazing guy. I'll talk a little bit about him more in a minute. Um, for us, the most success that we had on the game drives was early morning. And you do get up, like you'll get up at 5.30 if that's what you want to do. And that is what I wanted to do. Um, in the morning, we saw a rhino, which we were told is really good luck. Uh, we, it was amazing that we got to see a male lion eating a zebra. I've got a, a video of this on my Instagram, so check that out. Um, and it, the, the thing that was so amazing to me was when we saw, we saw a few lions. Uh, we saw a couple of males, and then we saw some females with cubs on a couple different instances. It was amazing to me how close we could get. And the lion didn't care. I don't know if they're just so used to humans or it was this one in particular was so preoccupied with eating its meal. But uh, Patrick, like Patrick had no fear in getting us right up in front. And sometimes he would, Patrick would even like kind of get in the way of other cars of their viewing the animals. And uh, he kind of had, had a no care attitude about, you know, really making sure that we had a good experience. Um, and the animals, I can't even do it justice, but they're just so majestic. I don't know if it cheapens it by saying like, it felt like, it felt like Jurassic Park or something like that. Uh, like seeing an elephant up close, which just completely dwarfs you, especially the male elephants, um, or seeing a giraffe, like how incredibly beautiful they are or how they're so big. Um, it was such a cool experience. Our car had uh, a portion of it without a roof, so you could stand up and, and you could hang out the top, and you could do that while you're driving and, and get the breeze in your face and, and the dust blowing on you, and, and you could look out what, what felt like for miles. Um, Patrick and David were so good at seeing something from far away and knowing exactly what it was. Um, there were times I'm like, oh, there's an elephant, and they're like, no, stupid, that's a wildebeest, or that's a, wild, uh, that's a water buffalo, or... Um, they were, they were, they were really fantastic. Um, so yeah, the lines were amazing. Zebras, there's not a whole lot of water there right now. Uh, there is a river you can go to and you can see crocodiles and, uh, hippopotamus, but Kenya, and I'm going to touch on this more later. Kenya's in a serious drought, like a serious years long drought. Um, where a lot of the terrain was brown and 
I was talking to someone who told me like, yeah, this, there's a lot of land, uh, plant die off, which leads to a lot of animal die off. And for the Maasai, that means it's difficult to graze cows right now. And so they're, they're, uh, they're raising more goats instead. Um, so that was sort of a, a harsh reality that we were able to see as well. But, uh, the game drives are just, they're just so cool. I, I can't do it justice. Uh, I really recommend it. Again, going in the morning and going at night were the most successful times for us. Going during the day, we, we, we saw a lot of animals, but like not as many of the cooler animals, basically the cats, right? The big cats. Uh, so we were able to see some cheetahs and lions and things like that, which like there are not many cheetahs left in the wild. Um, so it was, I felt really lucky to, to be able to see them. Um, so how it kind of works is like you go in the morning, you come back for breakfast and you go out again, you come back for lunch, you go out again. And, uh, every night you kind of turn in early, uh, Wi-Fi and things like that. Like who, who really cares when, when you're out, you know, on the savannah in the bush and you're trying and you're going on game drives. But, uh, I did bring some reading and, and some things like that, but we turned in early every night, listened to the sounds of, of animals. There was an animal living in my tent and like I would wake up in the morning and there would be animal droppings in the tent. And they were like, this is ridiculous. I'm talking about this, but they were small, like a mouse. So I thought, you know, Oh, there's, there's a mouse in my tent, whatever. Like I've had mice in my apartments in New York city before, but the, the second night we were there, uh, I turned on the light in my bathroom and there was like a, a screen window at the top. And it, at the very last second, I saw something on the outside of this screen uh, crawling up the screen. And all I saw was the bottom of it and this long tail. And man, I tell you, it was a rat tail. So I don't know if it was like a shrew or something or if I had a rat living in my tent, but that, <laughs> but that freaked me out for a bit as like, I'm, again, like inside my tent, I'm just sleeping within a mosquito net. It could easily crawl under that and crawl into my tent or crawl into my bed and chew my face off. If you've seen that Rats documentary, <laughs> Morgan Sporlock on Netflix, like I had that in my mind all night as I'm listening to like screaming banshee monkeys and thinking that this rat is going to crawl into my tent and chew off my face. But luckily that didn't happen. Um, okay, so when you go with the Maasai, they do take you to a Maasai village. Um, and listen, I had read a lot of negative press about this saying like, Oh, they put on this show for tourists and they just want to sell you things. And like, it's very not you know, like inauthentic. Um, so I'll say this, I love the Maasai. Um, they do want you to buy things and it is a bit of a haggle and you do feel somewhat pressured to buy things when you're there. Um, but like, this is how they are sustaining themselves. And this is how they make money. Now, one of the people that we were hanging out with is a British woman who's really fascinating. And I'm really, really hoping I can get her on the podcast. She's doing a lot for the Maasai. She, she's married into, uh, one of the villages and she actually married Patrick. Um, polygamy is allowed within the Maasai culture. And so Patrick does have two wives and, and, and she's one of them. And she explained like it, by buying one bracelet from the Maasai, like you are therefore providing or ensuring that that family has food for a weekend. Um, and so I don't know, I guess, 
understanding that, I was okay with the fact that they want you to buy stuff. Um, they do do a traditional like dance and song and they make you dance with them. And there is photo and video evidence of me doing this with them. And I look like a total fool. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I guess I can sort of see how people without really knowing the full picture would think like, Oh, they're just selling us stuff. And they think like I'm a stupid tourist and I want to buy things. Um, but it like, that is their primary source of income that and, and participating in the game drives and things like that. They bring back money into their community. Um, yeah, they, they do like, they do eat a lot of meat and, and drink blood and drink milk from the cows and the goats. Uh, that's something that you're probably aware of if you've learned about them in school and things like that. Um, obviously there's some like updating with it's 2017. And so Patrick and, David are like really well educated and they have cell phones and things like that to obviously do business and, and, and to promote their, uh, their game drives. But, um, yeah, we, I, I bought some things. I got a really cool Maasai sword and I got some cool souvenirs for, uh, my friends and things like that. And so I do really recommend that you go and, and learn from them. They're open to any question. They're not offended. Um, and they're really open to you learning about them. And when you're on the game drives, the Maasai people like really want to ensure that you have a good time. And so, yeah, I think you should go to the village. We, um, we were taken inside a couple of homes and we learned about cooking and things like that. I really wanted to drink the, the milk mixed with the blood and we had con- we had set up for me to do this, um, and then I just I felt kind of silly because we we talked about how we were going to do this and they were going to kill a goat, and yeah, I'm sure that that goat was then going to also be consumed by everyone else there. But I felt really silly by being like the outsider coming into the community and being like, oh, like I want to do this cool thing that seems really novel and fun to me. And it'll give me a great story at like the expense of you having to kill a goat, uh, which I'm sure they would have, you know, required me to pay for. But I don't know. I don't know if it's a if it's a traveler's or guilt thing or like a Western guilt thing. But at first I was really like keen on doing this and I was like, oh, this is cool. I'll get an amazing story. And then I just felt like, ah, this feels maybe a little bit icky. And so I told Patrick, you know, like, eh, we're not going to we're not going to do this. And he's like, oh, hey, that's cool. Um there's something there called a sausage tree with these sausage shaped fruits hanging from it. And the Maasai use these fruits to uh, like distill in alcohol is very low um, alcohol by volume. It's like 2% or something like that, but it is a fermented drunk. And that's something that if, if you ask the Maasai, when you go visit the village, they might let you try. Of course, again, you should pay for things like this because it's their labor and their work that's producing things. But um, I have some cool pictures and videos of the Maasai on my Instagram that you can check out. Again, I'm working on a website, so I'll I'll try to put that up as well. Um, So yeah, do a game drive, meet the Maasai, ask them questions, learn about their culture. It's really incredible. this is totally unlike other places that I've traveled before. And I'm hoping that I can, can do this again. I'm, I'm planning on going to Tanzania there. You can Google this crater in, in Kenya it, without knowing the full name, just Google Kenya safari crater. And it 
the belief is that this asteroid had hit um, and, and, and created this hollowed out bowl and there's water in there and there's like an incredible diversity of wildlife. So that's, that's a place that, uh, I didn't check out, but I want to, um, what else about the safari? I think that, I think that wraps it up. Uh, so we spent our three days there and we flew back into Nairobi. The next thing of note, I guess, to come out of Nairobi is uh, Christian, who had taken the week off to just be completely amazing to us and, and show us around and drive us around. Um, he, you know, we, he was his vacation too. So he was like, hey, I want to I check out a concert. Uh, Diplo is playing here. Or as everyone uh, there was saying, Diplo, which maybe is the correct pronunciation. I don't know. Um, so we, he was playing at a place called Carnivore Gardens with a bunch of other DJs as opening acts. And I was like, okay, cool. Like this normally isn't really my type of thing. You know, his samples and things like that have a lot of top 40 radio and some of it, you know, I know and is, is fun to dance to and things like that, but uh, not normally something that I, I would have done here in the States, but I was like, hey, yeah, sure, cool. One in Nairobi, I guess. Um, now, and I'm assuming that Nairobi doesn't get a ton of international acts coming. So, man, people showed up for this event. Uh, it was at a place called Carnivore Gardens, which has like a restaurant in the front, but then it's this big outdoor area. So it was kind of like, you know, like an outdoor festival kind of vibe. And man, I, I, probably well over a thousand people there. It was packed and people were just dancing and singing along and going nuts. It was so much fun, man. When I tell you, it was great. Uh, we met a couple other people there from the UN and then I met some locals. I tell you, when you travel, like you gotta put your insecurities behind, leave your ego behind and just talk to people and hang out. And it's, it's okay to be silly and goofy. And I had a great time um, dancing with people, singing along, like they had to pry me away. We, we left a little bit before it ended just because it was, again, with the traffic in Nairobi, geez, it was crazy trying to get in there. Um, so we left a little bit early just so we could get out and not deal with that hassle. And th they had to pull me away. I, I, I had so much fun. I loved it. Something else cool that we did, uh, I get cool, pretty touristy is we went to the giraffe center um, and the money that you pay helps to go for the African fund for endangered wildlife. They have, I don't know how many giraffes they have. I guess like, I guess they had four and there's two levels. So you can walk up a level to where you're at the height of the giraffe's head, right? And you can feed them. So you get like a hand of food and they'll eat right out of your hand. And just like they eat leaves, like they stick out their tongue, kind of like a frog to help them grab the food. And it's, it's kind of gnarly and slimy, but apparently they have like their saliva has like antiseptic or anti, antiseptic properties. And, um, it's clean to do like you can, if you want to, they do this thing called like giraffe kisses where you can feed the giraffe from your mouth. Uh, it doesn't, <laughs> oh God, it doesn't bite you or anything like that. Um, again, like it's, it, it eats by grabbing with its tongue, uh, which you see on the safari too. Like they, they get on their tippy toes and then they stick their tongue out so they can get a little bit longer and they grab leaves with their tongue or grab branches and pull them down with their tongue. So you can do a draft kiss and 
you can kiss a giraffe as you feed it. Uh, I didn't do that, <laughs> but um, I did feed the giraffes. And hey, it, I think it was like uh, a thousand shillings, which is $10 American, 10 US dollars. So hey, it's fun. It's pretty crowded and you have to kind of squeeze your way in through the crowds of people if you want to feed the giraffes. But um, I see you travel bloggers out there. I see people doing things like this so that they can get a get a cool picture, which I'm guilty of. Um, we went to a few markets as well. Uh, things can get a little bit squirrely in some of the markets. Uh, so you do need to have your wits about you. I'll say that like we had no problems, but you know, everywhere that you go, um, there are guards. So every sit down restaurant we went to, and again, not like real fancy places or anything like that, but, um, they had gates and they had guards and they check you when you go to the, to the small airports, they look under your car with the mirrors. And at some of them you have to get out and they check your trunk and your glove box. Uh, the home that I stayed in had a guard on the premises for 24 hours. And in the UN area, a lot of the homes have, uh, most of them have a guard and either a barbed wire fence or an electric fence and lots of gates and locks and things like that. So uh, it's well protected. Again, I didn't have any problems, but I'm assuming that that stuff is there for a reason. Um, there was like a terror type of attack if you remember like the Westgate mall four years ago, which was just like what happened and the response to it was a, a total disaster. Uh, when the, the military got called in and like it basically like blew up a floor of the mall. Um, but like we went to that mall when we had to get some groceries and things like that. And there was no issue, but I'm assuming those things are there for a reason. Um, so yeah, you know, just have your wits about you. The best way really is to travel around if you're not going to do the, the taxi van route is Uber. Uh, it's, it's like really the best way to get around. It's cheaper than it is here in the States and it's plentiful and all the Uber drivers are like, were really sweet to us and nice. And again, they're cool people to talk to and to learn about uh, the country through. Okay, one of the other thing, well, one of the other reasons that we went to Kenya was that we had identified a place that we could kind of like do a little bit of service for. And so we raised a little bit of money and we got a computer donated for an orphanage. Now, I want to kind of dissect this a bit. Um, the orphanage is called the Dream Children's Home, and it's a little bit outside of Nairobi. Um, it took us like an hour and a half from like the city center just because of the traffic, but it wasn't that far away. Um, it wasn't that far away from the giraffe center either. Now the, um, dream children's home was founded by this woman named Rachel and she's incredibly sweet. Uh, she greeted us with tea when we got there. We got to meet all the kids. We got to meet some volunteers from Europe and some local volunteers from Nairobi who came to hang out with the kids and play with them and, and bring them some food and stuff that day. Uh, they're really, they're doing an amazing thing there. Um, orphan children, um, while there's, you know, I, in any pool of people, there's a spectrum. Uh, a, a number of them have both of their parents deceased. Um, some of them do have a, a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle that is uh, kind of like in touch with them and checking in on them. 
some of the children were born and then abandoned in the hospital uh, by the mother. Again, like without judging, like <laughs> I'm sure there's there's a variety of reasons for that. Again, and not condoning it, um, but very religious country, so I'm assuming that either taboo for uh, abortion services or uh, there's a lack of funding for it or availability of it. Um, and so maybe that's the reason why people do that. Um, or they're scared or I, I don't know. I don't, I don't need to get into that, but, um, met some amazing, beautiful children. One of them, uh, Faith, who's three years old, was a child whose mother left her. And so from day one of her life, she's lived in, in the children's dream home. They provide education throughout primary school, and then after primary school, children remain in the home, but they attend high schools outside of the the orphanage. Um, and they they see to it that the children go through college before they leave the home. So we met a really intelligent young woman who's actually 22 and is at the end of college, and she's finishing out her stay within the orphanage before she, you know does a normal adult life. Um, and, um, what can I say? It was really a humbling experience. They don't have much. Um, so I want to get into talking about uh, donating and Western donors and things like that. Um, what the home needs most is a sustainable food source, a consistent source of water and like good bathroom, toilet, plumbing type of facilities. As I said, Kenya has been in a pretty bad drought. And so the water that the home gets, they have to purchase. When it does rain, they try to collect as much rainwater as possible. And they have like the standard type of tanks that you see uh, throughout Kenya. But right now they're purchasing water and like they don't have a whole lot of money. And water is super important <laughs> for sustaining your life and for plumbing services and for food. They do have a farm on the property where they, um, as much as possible, grow their own food and try to be sustainable and to teach the children about growing and to teach them a skill. Um, but there's not a lot of water right now. And so that farm is not really working so well. So, um, one of the reasons why we visited was I wanted to see where the money was going. And those three things that I just said are really what the home needs. They also talked about like primary school funding and that it's between $500 and $600 American satisfies all school fees for a child for, you know, K through five. Um, which is not a substantial amount of money in America. So it's, that's really quite amazing. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, so this doesn't pertain to this specific home, but I want to say that um, there are problems that can arise from Western donations. And this happens in Kenya, and this happens in many other places throughout Africa and other places in the world. Uh, there are a lot of very good-hearted people with good intentions who want to help and donate money, and it feels good to do that. I understand that. It does for me, too. And it feels like you are filling a need and you are helping us, uh, creating a solution to a problem. 
but it doesn't always work that way. Now, in a lot of places, when money is donated, um, even money coming through international organizations and NGOs and, and even the UN and things like UNICEF who are trying to help create solutions, that once the money reaches the higher ups in that country who are then supposed to move that money into the proper or allocate that money into the proper places, it's squandered or it's stolen or it never makes it to that place. Uh, so that's one problem with donations. And I'm not telling you not to donate, but I am telling you that you need to understand where your money is going. And so that might mean visiting a place or learning about a place more um, than just donating money. So that's one problem with it. A second issue is that sometimes money does not create sustainability. So it might create like a Band-Aid for a short amount of time in an instance where, yes, if people need food, they need food in the immediate and that money will satisfy that problem. And you, they need, if they need food coming from an outside source, then yes, they need that food. But people also need to be able to help themselves and to be able to create sustainability. And so... That's one of the things that this home is trying to do and that, okay, we're going to create a garden or like once we have water facilities up and running, the kids can learn skills and they can learn about plumbing and growing food and things like that. And to me, that's perfect. And so I'm very glad to be able to donate that money and I'm going to try to do more for the home. So maybe this is something that I'll be talking about uh, with you listeners more in the future. But, um, yeah, like think about it. It's it's the whole like, and I hope this is fair, but it's the whole teach a man to fish sort of a thing, right? Give a man fish, he eats. Teach a man to fish, he eats for the rest of his life. Um, so it's something where I think like the Tom's Shoes model is being revisited where like Tom's Shoes was, you'd buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes. But, you know, that gives somebody shoes until the shoes are completely worn out and tattered. And then they don't, there's no viable business there that is creating shoes or, or, you know, creating a long-term solution of sustainability. Um, somebody who I look up to, who talks about this a lot is Justin Wren, who is a, who's an MMA fighter. He, uh, he has a book out and a website called fight for the forgotten. And he works with a company called water four and they build wells or they drill wells within Congo. I think they have one coming up in Rwanda, um, so check them out. He also, he recently was on, um, uh, the big Brown breakdown talking about MMA stuff, but also talking about the work that he's doing in Congo. And so he talks a lot about, uh, Western donations and, and he, he talks about like being on the ground within Congo and, uh, you know, seeing money that doesn't reach them and, and seeing the problems that can arise from Western donations that aren't like really focused and really put into sustainable development projects. Uh, so I, I recommend him again, his book is fight for the forgotten. His name is Justin Wren and his website is fight for the forgotten. So, um, I take a lot or he, he's been a, he's been an influence on me lately in in sort of figuring out how, how I can help out at the dream children's home. Um, so yeah, I guess those are my thoughts on it. Um, it's amazing too. Like they, they don't have much in the, in them there and they're offering me tea and you know, you might think like, Oh, is the water safe? But it's like, no, like I, I, I'm drinking this because they don't have much and they've offered me something. And, um, it was really amazing to meet them, to see the volunteers, 
they have volunteers that are living there. Um, uh, they have a volunteer from Denmark, I believe, who's been there for like two years. And again, like without proper plumbing facilities at night, the children use bedpans and like empty them out in the morning. Um, I said, do you have enough food every night? She said, the kids, they eat every day, but sometimes that means like your small portion has to be cut in half because you want to make sure that that second half will be there for tomorrow. Um, so I'm promoting them. If you want to donate to them, you can go to their website. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. They, they, you can pay through PayPal. Uh, it's through a European, uh, a European woman who's helped out the home. Uh, it goes through Better Place, which is like a safer way of donating. Um, otherwise, you have to bring them cash. Uh, so you can use Better Place. And again, you could pay by credit or, or PayPal. You have to just convert to euros, which you can easily do over use it. Just type into Google US dollars to euros. Or if you're listening from anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, I can I can safely say, like, I can guarantee that this money is going to a good place. It's going directly to them. Um, I've been on the ground there. I want to go back. I want to set up maybe a GoFundMe. I think they need a social media presence and I want to try to identify a company that can help them like drill a well or drill for plumbing services or I don't know enough about these things. So I have to, I have to read more, but, um, really humbling, um, to see children with smiles on their faces when they really just don't have very much. And uh, met a little boy who said, where are you from? I said, New York. He said, hey, NYPD. And I said, yeah. And he had this kind of like beret hat, like a like military style. And he's like, oh, I'm, a, I'm NYPD. And I said, oh, man, that must mean you protect everyone here. And he said, yeah, yeah, I do. So it was, uh, it was really cool. And, you know, I, there are a number of, of, of places where you can, you can learn about, you know, impoverished um, communities within Africa and figure out how best you can do your part with keeping in mind that, you know, sometimes or often maybe, I don't know if that's fair to say, but, you know, the donations that you give might not make it to the people. So you really need to learn about them. Um, okay. What else do I want to say about Kenya? Well, really, this is my first time in Africa. Um, any time you spend in a place is never enough time. So I feel like I just scratched the surface with learning about things there. Uh, people are just incredibly friendly to us, um, willing to help, willing to learn about me, willing to teach me about them. I think that you need to really uh, peel away your preconceived notions about Africa. You know, when I told family members and things like that. Some of them were like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so glad you're going, but I'm going to be nervous for you. Um, it's funny because I, I work in Red Hook and I'm, I'm not trying to demonize that community. I, I love the community I work in, but I came home and, and today on the news, two people shot in Red Hook. And it's like, I say that to say anywhere you go, anywhere, there can be bad things that happen. Um, so I, I really did not, feel any less safe than anywhere else I've traveled within the world. And so, um, again, that doesn't mean you don't need to be smart and have your wits about you and make good decisions. But, um, I think that if you're curious about Africa, um, I think you should go. And I, you know, I was planning to go back to Vietnam this summer and I 
think that I've changed my mind. I think I want to go back to Africa and see more of it. Um, yeah. So that's Kenya, folks. Uh, wow, I really rambled for a long time here. We're at the hour mark. Um, I am going to put a bunch of the information uh, for Patrick and for the home and for some of the things I did in the show notes on iTunes and SoundCloud, so you could check that out. Um, I won't, won't talk much about me in this episode. I changed my Instagram name to The Voyages of TV. Um, I've got a guy designing me some designs right now so I could make some new stickers. I do have some old ones left. So if you like this episode or any of the other episodes or you have feedback or suggestions for Kenya or other places to travel or you just want to talk and say hello, uh, please do so. I will send you a sticker. I still have a couple copies left of um, Eating Korea and uh, 360 Degrees. Those are from previous episodes if you listen to. So if you're interested in getting one of those copies, hey, just reach out to me and I, uh, I'll send you one. So that's it for now. I got a couple things planned for the next two weeks. Um, also flying out to California next week. So um, hopefully going to get a couple more podcasts out before that because I've, I've really been slow with all the traveling I've been doing. So, um, yep, again, that's it. I think that's the third time I've said that's it. Uh, you know, take care of each other, people, and I, uh, I'll see you next time or talk to you next time. Bye-bye. All right, before that outro music, I'm back. Uh, I recorded the Kenya episode a day ago, and um, I had a conversation with a friend who lives in Mombasa, and I thought that it would be important to include the information that my friend talked to me about. While I'm here recording a podcast, pretending I'm Anthony Bourdain about all the amazing things that I did in Kenya, uh, my friend let me know that there's a bit of a darker truth. Uh, I talked a little bit and kind of skimmed over the fact that there is uh, corruption in Kenya. So... Uh, I don't know. I think that the when I first started this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about a lot of fun stuff. And it's become a bit more political just because that's how life is. And, um, you know, I think that my friend put it to me best when, uh, and I'm being vague on the gender on purpose, but they said that uh, Kenny is a watermelon. So I said, what do you mean it's a watermelon? And they said that it's, it's green and beautiful from the outside, but it's red on the inside. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of the specifics here. Uh, again, this is their perspective, but um, I don't think that I, I'd be doing, I'd be painting a fair picture if I didn't include this stuff and only included all the fun things that I did. So I was talking to my friend, uh, there's a seven hour time difference and they said, uh, I'm up late. <clears throat> I'm up late. I can't sleep. I have a lot on my mind. And I said, what's on your mind? And they said, well, you know, there's some good things on my mind. I'm, I'm finishing up school and all this stuff. And then, uh, then they started to, uh, speak some truths here. So I'm kind of reading this off of the phone as I record this, but I said that, um, Corruption is the song that rings in our ears. I mean, that in itself is a poetic way of saying that there's a lot of corruption in Kenya. They said, for me, uh, for me to get a nice job, I have to bribe somebody. 
there's a lot of tribalism here too. People from the president's tribe called Agikuyu, I hope I'm saying that right, these are the ones that are dominating the big positions in companies, banks, the police force, and government. So the people who get jobs are from the central province. Many companies are shutting down due to embezzlement of funds. This year alone, we had more than 20 powerful companies collapse. Banks go into receivership, leaving poor, leaving poor clients stranded. Um, Kenya is currently ranked third globally in corruption. My friend made mention of the fact that I was going to talk about the traffic in Kenya on the podcast, which I did, and they said that um, Kenya is ranked second poorest globally in managing our traffic. Um, And then... Imagine this, Tim, me being Tim, uh, $400 million getting lost, money meant to be a loan from the EU to help in managing the, country, managing the country's budget disappeared. It has never been accounted for. Auditors were bribed, and until now, no report has been released on that. The list of corruption is endless. Money meant for the youth just vanished into thin air. The people that took this money roam freely. The person responsible for this, I don't know if that means the person responsible for the audit or the person responsible for losing the money, um, has relations with the president. Um, Jeez. Voting gets rigged, so there's no true democratic process in getting elected officials out who do the wrong thing. Many people who speak back mysteriously disappear. The opposition leader's son was murdered. Jeez. Um, President and vice president, many people feel irresponsible for the 2007 post-election violence, which claimed thousands of lives. Several witnesses came forward, and their, their deposition fell on deaf ears. Many witnesses, again, are disappeared or murdered. Recently, one of the ministers from Kenya who was cherished was in an airplane accident, and it showed that there was poisonous gas on the plane. Investigators are often forced into silence. Victims are often paid for their silence. Whew. So, yeah, heavy situation. Um, sorry to end the podcast on this uh, on this note, but I felt like a bit of a fraud after hearing this from my friend. Um, in the sense that I recorded a podcast about how much fun I had in Kenya when there again, as someone coming in and spending money and just doing the things that I want to do. Uh, there are realities under the surface of the things that I'm doing as a tourist, as a traveler, as someone seeking adventure, um, that I feel are important for me to share with you. Um, because for, I guess the majority of the people living in Kenya, this is their reality. And it's not the reality that, uh, I as a traveler or tourist see. So, 
Okay, there you have it, kids. Uh, this is now officially the end of the episode. Brian, you can cue my outro music. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>